You're listening to episode 111 of Diferente. Wait, hold up. Before we go any further, I have something very important to ask you. Will you share this podcast with your friends? It's very easy to share the love by either texting a direct link to this episode or posting a screenshot and link to the show on your preferred social media platform. Make sure you tell them why you want them to listen. Thanks for your support. Now back to the show. This episode is all about creating your own version of success in the creative world with my friend Andrea Posey, or Drea, as some call her. We met when we were both working in the DC television scene, no pun intended, and now she's pursuing her dream career in fiction, TV, and film as part of the writing team of the TV reboot of The First Wives Club. Oh, I love that movie. And don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to say. I just want to be myself. You don't own me. <laughs> You're in for a treat today. I've said it before that to do what we love, we must take risks. And this fantastic woman embraces that statement wholeheartedly. Drea shares with us her journey in creating her own vision of success and pursuing her passion in the entertainment industry. We also chat about her struggle to embrace her unique identity and how to deal with moments of self-doubt and sabotage, which I'm all too familiar with. Comencemos. Da, 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 da. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Drea, welcome to Diferente. Thank you so much for making time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I love your podcast. I'm so glad to hear that from a fellow creative. It's honestly an honor to have that opinion because I really value your opinion and I value your input. So thank you so much. I'm very flattered. <laughs> thank you. Ditto. Kudos to you. The branding, everything is on point. I'm sure it will reach many people. I hope so, too. And this story, I hope, reaches a lot of people as well, because you have such a fascinating journey. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood first. Can you tell us where and how did you grow up? Yeah. So actually, my father was in the Air Force. So funny story, I was born abroad in England. And then he got transferred over to Bowling's Air Force Base, which is in Washington, D.C. So that's pretty much where my origin roots are. I grew up in the DMV area, which is what I like to say, DC, Maryland, and Virginia. So um, I spent my formative years there. I went to high school at Suitland High School, Vision Performing Arts School in Forestville, Maryland, which is just on the outskirts of Washington, DC, which was great for me because they had a program for young creatives and students who were interested in the arts. They had specialized programs for theater, uh, visual arts and photography, music, dance, and luckily television production which is what kind of <laughs> helped me get on this early path to trying to be a creative and trying to be a storyteller. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family life, though. I want to know what your family was like. 
My family was awesome. I mean, typical family in Washington, D.C. My dad was in the Air Force. My mom worked as an executive assistant in D.C. as well. And we kind of just lived on the outskirts in Maryland, right on the border there. And um, it was great. I have a twin sister. And my father remarried when I was 10. So that gave me a wonderful stepsister and a stepmom. So I kind of had a blended family from early age. My dad was an ordained minister and also just super, super smart when it comes to mathematics and information sciences. And But yeah, I say all that to say that uh, those are the type of influences that I had. It's that a father who worked really, really, really hard and taught me the importance of hard work and putting your best foot forward and making sure that even if you don't necessarily have all of the resources that other people have, you still can control how hard you work and not be beaten by resources or anything like that. There's always going to be people who have maybe have greater access or different privilege, but that doesn't mean that you still can't carve out your shot. So my mom was an executive assistant for years, and she took a lot of pride in her job. And most importantly, I think she instilled in me the importance of articulating myself well and verbal communication at an early, early age. Even now, she gets on me if I say one type of ebonics or slang. She's like, um, oh, that doesn't sound like you graduated from the Penn State University. What, what is that preposition <laughs> behind that phrase? And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so I think looking back on it, what parents who, if I was interested in something, they celebrated that, they championed that. It was, you know, some people don't grow up in those environments. You take that for granted. I've learned and I've met so many people out here in L.A., who come to me with stories about wishing how they started their creative journeys early, but were too afraid because their dreams were really stifled by their parents or their households for not being practical. And when I look back at that, I'm lucky that that wasn't the situation that I was in. So you graduated high school in the outskirts of D.C. Where did you go to college? Right. So like I said before, I went to Suitland High School, Visual Performing Arts School. Shout out to them. I decided that I wanted to go on to film school after going through a four-year television curriculum program there at that high school. I decided I wanted to study film at Penn State University, which is in State College, Pennsylvania, which is awesome. Is it? I've never heard anybody say that <laughs> about Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's in the middle of nowhere, but I think it, it gives you one of those experiences where, for me, I always say looking back, like, I wanted to go to school in New York or California at first, but if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have changed it because those four years in Happy Valley and State College with those people in, in that town, it was just an awesome experience for me. It's a little different of an experience. We definitely had the resources, the faculty, the equipment, and great guides, but it's a town and a place where everyone's not making films every day, which means that if you do need certain resources from the community, they're probably more excited to help you. So that's something that I experienced um, being in film school and state college is that it was easier to lock locations, homes, restaurants. Even my senior year when I did a thesis film about colorism in the Black community, I was in a city that was predominantly white. And I was trying to get a film made with an all African-American cast. And I pulled it off because those people in that town, in that community, in that faculty were willing to help me. I had to actually go <laughs> and present my idea to, I think, the superintendent for the school board to have access because it was a, a film that involved kids that so would require me to go into elementary school and have access to kids to come out and be extras. 
and I pitched them my idea and they let me do it. <laughs> and it was great. That's the type of access that I had early on. I'm not sure. I'm sure there was would have been a way for me to do that in New York or LA, but I just say there was a sense of community there that allowed me to really tell stories the way I wanted to. And if I can make a film back in that time period with an all African-American cast about colorism and interrace relations in central Pennsylvania, it taught me that I could do that anywhere. So uh, it was great. Penn State was awesome. And then I graduated and went on. I was a basketball player in high school. So I got an opportunity to go and work at ESPN and studio production. I mean, that was awesome for a little bit, but I found that it wasn't really giving me the satisfaction that I wanted as a storyteller. But it was just a natural progression for me to return to Washington, D.C., where there was a budding television community. Luckily, with Discovery being in Silver Spring and a bunch of different production companies, it gave me an opportunity to kind of go home and get some nonfiction television experience and try to plot my way to Los Angeles, which is a very interesting journey. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that a little bit more. But going back to something you said earlier about you and your sisters, you mentioned that all three of you were different. When did you start realizing that you were different, maybe from your sisters? My sisters and I were in an interesting situation because we ended up able to go to different high schools. So even though I had a twin and we lived in the same household, we literally went to different high schools for different things. She went to go play the violin and I had gotten to a high school for television production. I was also an athlete and my sister was a cheerleader. So there right there, that dichotomy right there, there's two girls growing up in a household One's an athlete, one's a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. There's even a point where our high school basketball teams played against each other and my sister was cheerleading on the sidelines against me. (laughs) So as you can see, (laughs) there was already some differences there, differences in personality, differences in career aspirations, differences in how we dealt with friends and peers and the environments around us. And somehow, I mean, if you ask me today, we're very different. And you can say, well, how does that happen in a household with the same parent? But it does. So I think I started to notice I was a little different than them when they would perhaps go outside and my head would be stuck in a book. I remember being in my father's house in D.C. He had a house in Northeast D.C. And I was downstairs and just always in a book, always. And they would be outside playing. This is before the basketball started. And then when I got into basketball, it was like, okay, how do I balance both my love for story and my love for sport? When did you start noticing that you didn't have the same, I guess, likes that your sister liked? Do you mean like in terms of like sexuality or do you mean exactly? Like, ironically, and I'm not sure if I ever sh- shared that with you, but that was something that actually came about like my freshman year in college, actually. You know, I became a, li- a little curious and I started a friendship with a dope, awesome girl. We're still friends to this day. Um, and, you know, I got to know her better. And once I got out of Washington, D.C., because actually, to be honest with you, my high school, there were a lot of LGBT youth, a lot. But I wasn't a part of that community. Like, I just, I mean, I accepted them and they were awesome. They were dope creatives and artists, but I was not dating a girl in high school, for example. (laughs) I had a boyfriend who went to a different high school. So I would think that that part of that journey happened for me when I was a freshman in college. I think that was when it became like, oh, okay, not necessarily completely opposite and different in makeup, but in sexual orientation, sure. And for me, I don't think that that was really an option in high school. It didn't need to be a part of my identity because that's not who I was. But something changed when I turned, I think, 18 or 19 years old. But 
that wasn't something I can say that I was willing to share with everyone because back at that point, it's like you don't see a lot of queer women of color or people of color as a part of the LGBT community. Like, sure, I went to high school with some kids like that, but it wasn't necessarily someone who identified that way in my family or in my immediate circle. But luckily, I had a lot of amazing, amazing friends that I was, even heterosexual friends that I was able to have conversations with who kind of helped me navigate that space. But it was definitely the early adolescent years where you're wondering and wondering, and you're having these different experiences that are pretty much off your parents' radar because you're in college. I mean, was this a scary time for you? Were you battling inside with maybe the way that your family might think of it and the way that you felt? How did you manage your emotions during this time that you were discovering this side of yourself? I relied a lot on my friends who are part of the LGBT community, but I would I'd say that a lot of people were definitely not out to their parents and were not having vocal conversations about this with their parents, especially at that point in time. And I had made a lot of films in the early years of my college career about how taboo homosexuality or identifying as lesbian or bisexual, how taboo that was for the Black community. Um, I actually made films about that. And, and looking back in hindsight, you can see that I was trying to find my voice and trying to figure out who I was and was trying to be as a young Black woman who also wanted to be an artist. But I think for me, it was a little tough because I had always been known as someone who was the best of the best academically, who was bound and destined for success. But for some reason in that time period, I felt like, people knowing that I either had a girlfriend or were interested in dating women, that that would somehow negate all of that, that it would cancel it all out. Uh, so that was a very real fear for me. So I, to be honest with you, I just kept a lot of that to myself. Was that tough? That must have been really hard. It was tough. Like if someone's talking about, oh, who are you dating? And then you notice that you're starting to say they or them instead of she, that was tough. I think for me in college, I will say it wasn't as hard in college. Pretty much, I didn't divulge that information to my parents. My sisters knew, and my sisters were supportive. So that was my situation, especially being away from school. I was kind of free to explore that and figure it out on my own. That's not something that, at that time period, my parents were absolutely open towards. And also, it would be an adjustment for them if they've known me to be a certain way my entire life. But then I go off to school and learn something else in a different season in my life, I can understand how that can be challenging the parents because some of them, for some parents, it's okay, well, do I know my child anymore? Did you ever feel like you were betraying a certain part of yourself when you were in that moment as far as like, oh my God, shouldn't be doing this? And I'm only asking this because I'm genuinely curious. I don't know the side of things. No, sure. I didn't feel like I was betraying a part of myself. Let's be realistic. Everyone who goes to college experiences something different or something fun and off the wall, whatever. But I wouldn't describe that as this. This was something that was, I was being introduced to a different part of me that I felt like, okay, this fits and this feels right, but how do I deal with it? And to be honest with you, I think a part of it was I was so afraid of what my parents would think. And I was also afraid of what some of my close heterosexual friends would think. Because this is almost like a decade ago. 
So this is not in the age of the Lena Waifs and the programming on television where queer women of color can exist and are celebrated. This is kids are still in college renting out DVDs of the L word in secret, trying to figure out who they are because they have some curiosities. So I think for me, just thinking back on it, and honestly, I haven't thought about this in a while. And so this is very raw and honest. I think I was just really afraid of what people would think of me and how their perspective would change. Because for so long, I had been the person who just excelled academically, the person who dreamed of going to Hollywood and making films and TV shows. And that may seem cool and great and not abnormal today, but back then it was pretty big deal to have that type of dream and go after it. And back then you did have some people who would assume ignorantly that if you were gay or bisexual, that you wanted to pursue people who were straight or the notion of the myth of gay people turning people straight, which is like... You mean like gay people turning straight people gay? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, she's looking at me a certain type of way. or Oh, she wants to get with you. And it's like, yeah, well, A, (laughs) every gay person or bisexual person is not looking at you straight, girl. (laughs) Like, you may not even be their type. And B, why would anyone want to waste their time trying to turn someone straight when there's plenty of LGBT uh, people around them that they can just have a normal, healthy relationship with? So I think at that point in time, I, I was just afraid because it was so different from my identity in high school and middle school. And I didn't want to let anyone down. And I didn't want it to cancel out everything that I had worked for and who I presented myself to be to the world. But I quickly found that authenticity was the best route for me. And looking back, like I think that just as a creative It's like if the quicker you can be authentic in yourself and find your voice in your stories without stifling that to fit some type of mold, the better off you'll be. Because some people are sitting on wonderful coming out stories or wonderfully complex stories and ideas about what it's like to be a queer youth. And they sit on them because they don't want anyone to know or they don't think that anyone's interested And then they'll watch the next person who was bold enough or courageous enough to tell their story win. And then they'll wonder why. And it's like, I could have done that. I had that same story. But the people around me told me, no, be quiet. You want to be a filmmaker, but you don't want to be a gay filmmaker, right? That's not what you want to be known as. I made a film in college, a documentary that was a true coming out documentary about kids in central Pennsylvania who were struggling with coming out to their parents. And I remember, and it made it into the film festival that they had there. And I remember getting a phone call from one of my family members saying, yeah, this is this is great. This is cool. And this is before me and that family member had a conversation about my own sexual identity. But I think they kind of knew. But they were saying, hey, yeah, this is great. This is great. You got this documentary in the film festival. This is really good for you. But, you know, you want to be known as a great filmmaker that's telling a story. You don't want to be known as a gay filmmaker. Right. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so when you plant those seeds early, I mean, it really can change the trajectory of the things that you go after. For one person, that may mean, okay, now I'm going to take a journey in the television and film industry and present myself as a heterosexual woman in hopes of succeeding and just telling stories that have nothing to do with part of my identity. Or you can be someone who says, you know what, that is a part of my identity. I'm going to be able to tell all types of stories, not just stories about the LGBT community, but I'm doing it through the lens of a queer Black woman. It depends on who's around you and how impressionable you are. If it's a family member that's always had your best interest at heart, 
and it's telling you, you don't want to be known as this, then perhaps you listen. But then maybe one day you wake up and realize, damn, uh, stifling that part of me in my work, if I hadn't done that, maybe I would be miles ahead. Maybe I would have had a story that I presented to the world that really connected and resonated with someone and I would be somewhere else and more vocal about who I am as a person, not just hiding amongst the safe stories or the safe creatives or producers. So I'd say all in all for me, it was just a fear of people seeing me differently, unfairly. I didn't want it to take away from anything that I had accomplished because I had worked so hard. I'm so glad that you brought up the point of being authentic and honest with yourself about who you are. But when was the point where you realized that you had to embrace your authenticity? When did you finally break through the insecurity and just say, you know what? Screw it. This is who I am. And I'm not apologizing for it anymore. (laughs) Gosh. Well, okay. So if I started exploring this side of myself or if I started questioning sexuality and who I was as a person, maybe at about 19, I would say that the confidence level mm, to finally, maybe 26, maybe it took seven years. (laughs) It's hard talking about it because I'm in such a different place right now. So I'm really, really, really reaching back. But I think it was towards the end of a major breakup that I went through. It was a life-changing breakup. And it really, a lot of who I was just as a person in general um, my identity, it had to change just who I was in a relationship, like who I was as a person. Anytime you go through something like that, like you kind of have to, sometimes you break and you have to go back to the drawing board. So for me, when that happened, when I was about 25 and a half, it was just a natural progression for me to go into a different season of my life and really look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, who are you? Like literally, who are you and who do you want to be? And that's just something that was a long, long journey that I had to go on and just figuring out like, okay, who am I when I'm not in a relationship? If I was in a relationship for five years in my early 20s and it ended in a way that I didn't expect it to, and now I'm here trying to figure out who I am as a person, you're automatically going to do some self-surgery and kind of like a self-makeover. So for me, I had to work on a lot of things internally because I felt like I talked a lot about the things that I wanted in life, but I had put them on the back burner. So I found myself uh, probably through 26 to 29, really doing some soul surgery in some different ways to get myself to a place to where I felt like, A, I was authentic and true to myself. I was more vocal about my life and my personal life with people because I think people relate to authenticity. Um, I was no longer afraid to tell people at work that I had had a girlfriend. That started to change. And when I came to LA, it was helpful because Los Angeles is like, okay, hey, you know, there's a ton of people working in the industry who identify as a part of the LGBT community. And I think coming to LA, my first job in LA was the first job that I worked where I didn't hesitate to mention that I was dating someone that was a woman. That was a big thing for me. Because even still in the professional capacity, I didn't want to be discriminated against. Even in Los Angeles, I always thought like maybe someone would use it against me because of their own personal views. Were you more worried about people discriminating against you as a gay woman than as a Black woman? A hundred percent. Because again, like I said, I went to predominantly African-American high school, which is an excellent experience. And then when I went to Penn State, it was predominantly Caucasian. 
and I went through a film program where I believe 100% to my memory, I was the only Black woman in that film program. But I was the only Black woman in that film program with a thesis film and professors in a community that rallied around me. So I already had experience running teams and working with wonderful colleagues and peers and artists who were not of color. So it wasn't foreign to me to go into an industry where I had to work and get along with and lead people who weren't of color who were working alongside me. That's one thing. But then when you bring in sexuality, that's a real fear. It may not be for some people today, but when you're coming out of college and you're going into the workplace, like discrimination for sexuality at that point in time was a real fear of mine. I'm pretty confident that when I first took my job in D.C., there were a ton of people who Facebook requested me. And I didn't accept their Facebook requests for years because I didn't want them to see pictures of me and the person I was dating. Because I didn't know what their views were. And I didn't want it to hinder me professionally. So when you have a kid that's had a dream since they were 13, and then it's kind of sad and unfortunate to think that they couldn't go into the workplace and be their true and authentic selves, or they weren't told that they could be. But now it's 2018 and you have people who like Alina Waith or like a Justin Simeon who can say, in, or myself, I'm in another category and other friends and peers of mine in the industry who can tell people, young people of color or young people in the LGBT community that when they're entering their careers, like you can be yourself and still make it. And I'm not sure someone told me that at that early on in my career, which created this mentality that I had to hide a part of me to succeed at least present myself. Being a Black woman, that's fine. Go in, do a great job. They'll bring you back again. But I wasn't quite sure if being a Black gay woman in Hollywood, I was going to be accepted. And so early on when you're building your career, not a lot of people are willing to take that risk. But at some point, I think you have to. That's such an important thing to talk about because a lot of people would assume that you would be more likely to be discriminated against because you're Black than because you're gay. But your perspective and your experience is completely different and it's unique to you. And I think that's what's so important to highlight. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration. But that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective. All of this can be life transforming. Let's transition into your career because I really want to talk about how you got your start in the TV production world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So when I graduated, I went to ESPN again and I worked in studio production. I was there for a little less than a year because it just was not a good fit. I was working for a sports center and I was a person that wanted to tell films or make films in scripted television or documentaries. And that wasn't, I wasn't working on long form content. So eventually I went back to DC, which is where my family is from in Silver Spring. And I landed at Sirens Media, which is a great place for the television community in DC to get your start. I think I started as an office assistant, I believe. And then after a year went by, I kind of petitioned to be put on a show as an associate producer because A, I went to film school. B, I had an award-winning film coming out of film school and I didn't want to sit at the front desk for too long. And so I remember, I think they had talked about making me an associate producer, but when the time came, 
they wanted to make me a production assistant instead. And it had been after I had been an office assistant for a year. I kind of protested that a little bit. I said, listen, you know, I've done this. I kept track of everything that I had done, along with being an office assistant and an assistant to the executives. I had made sure that whatever productions that were going on locally, I was a part of at night. So I would do my job from nine to six. And then I would go on set from probably about six to 2 a.m. And then I would show up at 9 a.m. at work, you know, ready to open office and keep going. And then eventually, I think after maybe about 10 or 11 months, they said, okay, you want to be an associate producer. You don't want to be a PA. We're going to have the PM interview you like she would interview someone else who was coming in for the job. And she interviewed me and I got it and she gave it to me because I deserved it. (laughs) And it was a wonderful opportunity. I'm glad that I stuck. I'm glad that I protested that. I was able to come out of that as an associate producer and work on a variety of different content, more so on the docu-reality side for different networks like Discovery Health and Lifetime, Bravo, et cetera. That's such a great example of going after what you want. I'm so glad that you shared that because, again, if you had kept quiet and just said, okay, I'll take whatever you can give me, (laughs) then you wouldn't have gotten the associate producer job, which again, you were totally qualified for because you were hustling and you were making sure that you were getting that experience on your own time, which is awesome. Do you have any mentors or people who have gone to bat for you in your career? I do. I've been lucky to have a couple of people advise me for me to go to bat for myself, I would say. And I think that that's important because when you don't have that type of guidance or leadership or people who have experienced it themselves, you can kind of either be shooting in the dark or be kind of wayward on your path. So for me, I have had people fight for me internally. I have had people say, you know, she's at this rate, let's get her more money. Or she's at this title, but I think she's ready for this. And I think that that's so important, but I will say that that came after proving myself immensely that I was more than qualified and just me really embodying the principle of being the girl that people wanted to win. And I didn't make that up myself. I read it somewhere. I read another writer had posted on Instagram, you have to be the person that people want to win. You have to be the person that when they sit down with you, they can see your eagerness and your willingness to work. And you're not just asking them for something, you're asking them perhaps to help you, but you have already done majority of the work. So all they have to do is pass it along. And those are lessons that I learned early on. So anyone who's ever gone to bat for me, they've gone to bat for me because they know 100% that when it came to that job, I wasn't going to drop Mm. the ball and that I was going to be the best at it, for sure. And you worked in nonfiction for several years. You moved to LA and now you have transitioned into the fiction world as a writer. What's it like being a writer in today's Hollywood as a woman of color? Can you talk a little bit more about your your current project. We want to know about your current project. So when I came out to LA, I wanted to get into that a lot quicker, but my resources and my contacts were in the nonfiction reality world. So I really buckled down and wrote as much as I could and went to a lot of panels and started to expand my network and my circle. And then last fall, I decided, okay, you know what? Now I'm at a higher level on the nonfiction ladder. Now I'm senior producer getting ready to be a supervising producer and I'm going up this ladder, but I know that the one that I need to be on is right over there. So when do you jump? And I think you can attest to this as a person who works in freelance is that when you're good and you're with a company, they want to hold on to you rightfully so as long as they can. 
and they're going to keep putting money in your pocket. But that's an easy deterrent for young creatives who are doing one thing that's been made available to them, but their hearts are telling them to do another. So I kept taking those jobs and they were wonderful experiences and they really helped me learn how to produce and write in Hollywood. But it's got to a point to where I really realized that the ladder I needed to be on was over there. And the only reason I wasn't on it was because of myself. So I decided to take some time off to pretty much fund an extended writer's retreat for myself for a couple of months, where I pretty much paid myself to write and create content that people could put their eyes on and would encourage someone to want to give me a shot in the scripted world. So I took some time off to write my own content. And luckily, I was able to become a part of the First Wives Club TV reboot writing team. That's been awesome. I've been able to learn a lot. I am the baby person in the room. (laughs) I'm not high up at all because it's a different ladder switch, but I'm working with a really talented showrunner who likes to foster great talent and uplift people and reach back. So I'm hoping that one day soon I'll keep climbing the ladder. But that's what I can say about my journey to switching ladders. I think that's the biggest part of that. It's so scary to do that because you left a high paying job with a great title and then you took a risk on yourself. First of all, you stopped working for a few months so that you could hone into your talent. And then you get a job where you are not necessarily at the level where you used to be on the other end in the nonfiction world. I took an interview with the scripted showrunner and she pretty much thought I was a little overqualified for the job. And she asked me straight to my face. She's like, you have all of this going for you. Why do you want to walk away from it on this ladder? Are you really going to give this up? And I'm like, yes, because it may be scary right now to take a career switch and to get on a different ladder and to have to go through the process again of starting from the bottom and building your way up. But A, I've already proven to myself that I can start from the bottom and go upwards. And B, what's even scarier to me is waking up 10, 15 years from now and seeing my peers who made the investments and the sacrifices now win and excel, knowing I could have been a part of that. But now I'm out of the game because I wouldn't take a risk or gamble on myself. So what's scarier, like not making as much money for a couple of months as you were or looking back and seeing other people taking and getting the things that you wanted and could have had had you been courageous and bold enough to take a risk on yourself. And there it is. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so happy that you were able to do that and take a chance on yourself. We talked about this in a few of our episodes so far about how scary it can be to take a risk, especially when you are just so comfortable in your comfort zone, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. Luckily, I have a great partner. (laughs) who was very supportive of that and really held down our house financially and stepped up and helped and to make sure that that was a a safe space for me to work and function and be a creative and to make that leap. So I'm pretty sure I couldn't have done that without her. Shout out to her. (laughs) Do you have any tips for people looking to be in that creative field? What are the three qualities every good storyteller must have in your opinion? I'd say the first one, honestly, is a good storyteller actually puts the work in to tell a story versus more work in talking about a story. Like, it's good to talk out a story if it's going to lead you to the page. But if you're the storyteller who's become the girl or the guy who's just campaigning their vision and their dreams to other people for plaudits or recognition, but isn't actually doing the work, that's a tough thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a tough thing because you're doing more talking than doing. And that's my big tip and advice is that it's okay to talk about your dream and talk about what type of stories you want to tell or what type of work you want to create. That's all well and good. But think about all the hours that you could have spent writing or rewriting or redeveloping or workshopping it with someone else or taking a meeting with someone else. I just I just know there's a lot of people, storytellers and people who want to be storytellers and all they do is talk, but they don't do the work. Then when it comes to the art of storytelling, I think the second tip would be to always be willing to continue to be a student and always be willing to continue to learn and observe what's working and what's not. But some people think, oh, I went to film school, so I don't need any additional education. So I think that that's the second tip to always be willing to learn and to change and adjust your tips into whether it's writing or creating concepts or anything like that. You got to still do the work. Learning is never over when it comes to storytelling. And then I think the third one would be to, again, authenticity. Some people will turn on the TV and they'll say, you know what? Smilf, Showtime, great show. Atlanta, amazing show. High Maintenance, HBO, amazing show. I'm going to make another one of those. But what about your story? Because I genuinely believe that there's a lot of people who are creatives who negate the gold that's already in their own lives because they want to mimic or mock what they see. And it's nothing wrong with taking inspiration from a lot of these great creators. And I can speak in the terms of television. There's nothing wrong with being inspired, but sometimes people will put their own stories in the back seat and try to create an image of someone else's vision. And they don't understand why it's not working or why it's not selling. And sometimes it's because it's not yours So sometimes we have to learn as storytellers to take a look back over our lives and value the gold that's there and pull from within. I think those are my tips. And, you know, always stay hungry and humble. Yeah. So do you ever get scared? How do you deal with moments of (laughs) self-doubt? I think anybody who's creative or a storyteller gets scared, for sure. Because writing or storytelling is completely subjective. So for me, it's kind of like that can be a little scary and a little daunting in itself to say, okay, I have this idea. I'm a creative, but how is the world going to see it? And I think you really, at the end of the day, you have to do a gut check and look yourself in the mirror and say, is this the best I can put forward? And if it's not the best, is it the best today? And can it be better tomorrow? You just genuinely have to be a person, like people say, your own gym buddy, but for storytelling. You have to keep yourself accountable. And when you are having feelings of doubt or confusion, it's okay to talk them out with other peers. You want to keep yourselves around people who go through bouts of self-doubt and confidence so you guys can step up and support each other in waves because it happens to the best of us. So if you can genuinely feel and appreciate and acknowledge the doubt and the confusion, and then understand where it's coming from, but settle it down and not let it get in the way of the work, I think you'll be okay. And you bring up such a good point about being authentic and genuine about your own story. Tell your own story, you said earlier, right? I'm such a champion of that. However, I can relate to how scary it can be to tell your own story because there are so many things that go on in your story that I think sometimes we internalize and we don't believe that other people will understand or be able to relate to. 
that for me has been so difficult now with this project and with other writing projects that I have coming up in the future to put my own voice down on paper (laughs) or down on the mic to actually say what I think and to actually say and talk about my own journey is almost painful. It's so scary sometimes because you don't know how people are going to receive it and you're putting yourself out there. But it's also so exciting. It's also very comforting to know that your story is actually something that other people might be able to relate to. And I think that's the key to being a good storyteller is not being afraid to tell your story and then just leave it out there and say, you know what, this is what it is. And whatever happens out there in the world with my story, I'm just going to trust that somebody will be able to relate to it. Exactly. Trusting that someone will be able to relate to it. Like, I think you have to know your why. Like, if you're going to tell a part of your story, you have to know your why so that if it isn't, on the off chance that it isn't well received by some people, that that's okay with you. Because if you don't, you know, you can't negotiate the whys after you put something out there. You have to know it before you do it. Because you will end up on a clusterfuck, for lack of a better word, with emotions and trying to figure out, okay, how do I manage the reception of my most intimate stories? But I'll say this, there have been plenty of people who have had similar stories and were afraid to tell them. And as soon as someone else told them and received critical acclaim or praise for them, it was like a lump in their throat. They regretted it because they saw like, listen, my story was the same, but I sat on it. And she told her story and she's doing this, 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 and this now. And now this person wants to work with her. And now this person wants to hear more from him. And they're sitting there arguably with the same truth and pot of gold that they weren't willing to put out there. So you have to think about it that way. It's not necessarily from a how can I make my story lucrative perspective. It's just if you want something and your personal story is a part of that journey, at some point, I think you have to get to a place where you're willing to at least share some of it in baby steps and not be afraid of it. Because you never know. The thing that you're most afraid to share could be the thing that sends you over the top as a creative. Absolutely. And you know what else is that you also have to stop caring about what people think, which is another part of the journey of just embracing who you are, which I'm still going through and you can totally relate to. You have to stop giving a crap about what other people think. And you know what? That's never going to entirely be able to be possible for me. Like I'm never going to completely not care about what people think because that's just who I am. I care. But I have to learn to just not put my self-worth in what other people think. I think there's a difference between caring a little bit and putting your self-worth on the shoulders of other people and what they think about you. I completely agree. And I think that if, if you want to be a creative or an artist, I think that that's the way to go. It's a natural human feeling to want to care about what people think. Trust me, I care about that so much. But eventually it, I got to a place where I realized that caring about what people thought contributed to me holding back on certain stories for so long. And that was to my detriment. And had perhaps had I not done that, had I been a little bit more authentic earlier Maybe I would have been in a different place in my career. Maybe I would have been in a different place in my personal life. So when you think about 
what holding on to what people think, what it's going to cost you, because it can cost you, I think it helps you to reassess how you deliver that authenticity and how vulnerable you are with the people who are receiving whatever you're putting out. And all of those what ifs that you mentioned before no longer matter anyway, because everything that you have done, including the mistakes, have been a part of the journey that has brought you here. And now you're rocking it. So it really doesn't matter, right? (laughs) As long as you have learned your lessons and that experience has taught you all of these lessons. So you have learned from your experiences and now you're here and that's all that matters. Exactly. And I'm thankful for it. (laughs) I have one more question for you. What is your definition of success? My definition of success does not include other people's definition of success for me. I hate to use a pun on words, but I feel like I'm winning in life when my goals and my priorities are things that come from the origins of my heart and the core of my identity. Because so often when you grow up just naturally in this environment, like you set certain standards and goals for yourself to succeed. And a lot of us do that, like I said, for plaudits of recognition, for the acknowledgement of our parents, for our families, for our peers, for our industries. But sometimes people forget to ask themselves, what do I want? What does success look like for me? Genuinely. So I think for me, success is creating goals and standards for myself that are directly a part of my core identity and not just a makeup or a concoction of what other people think I should be striving for and what other people think that I should be aiming to achieve. That's success. This month, we're launching the Diferente Shop, where people can support a nonprofit community organization while rocking some Diferente merchandise. And our first partnership will be with Camp Good Life. Allow me to introduce a very special friend of mine, JT Davis, founder of Camp Good Life. So JT, what is the mission of Camp Good Life? So Camp Good Life is a media and technology summer camp for kids between the ages of 12 to 17. And we target kids that are underserved and underrepresented. We take them out of the community, put them at a camp facility, and teach them how to take an idea from concept to completion. I'm a television producer. I understand how important it is to tell stories. And I want these children to have access to tell their own stories and to have access to the entertainment industry. And this camp takes place in the outskirts of Maryland, D.C. area. Is that correct? Why a camp? Why not stay in the city? Well, when I worked on a mayoral campaign here in D.C., I worked with kids uh, between the ages of like 16 to 22, and they had never been to some of the more beautiful parts of D.C. that were really serene. And when I took them there, they just like they sort of opened up and blossomed. And I really saw the difference between their behavior being in the city and being in a serene environment. And so I thought that if I'm targeting this population of children, I want to set them up for success. And I thought that taking them out to a very serene environment where they had the opportunity to just be kids and hike and kayak and do a zip line and nature walks and a bonfire, that they would just open up and blossom. And I have to tell you, last year they did. What can people do to help the Camp Good Life mission? Camp Good Life needs community support. And we need that in a couple ways. The first way is we love to embrace Camp Good Life ambassadors, people that hear about the camp, they want to put the mission on their back and take it to their friends and their family and essentially be force multipliers in the community for us by sharing the message of what we're doing. 
The second thing is that this camp is free of charge. And so we are raising money. We are looking for partnerships. We're looking for corporate sponsors. And if you would like to donate to Camp Good Life, go to campgoodlife.org and click on the pink pig. I've realized over the years that to live a full life is to make a positive impact in the lives of others. And that's what Living Diferente is all about, which is why for the entire month of August, we will be donating the net proceeds from every t-shirt and mug we sell to help sponsor kids attending Camp Good Life. Head to our website, adifferentelife.com, to join us in supporting this impactful community organization. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.